A cruise for Red Bull Racing, but catastrophe for Mercedes. Max Verstappen wins the Monaco Grand Prix at a canter to take the lead in the championship standings. This is the F1 Strategy Report. My name's Michael Amanato, and welcome to Round 5. The Monaco Grand Prix for Heeltread.com. Socks inspired by iconic cars. Use the code word STRATEGY for 10% off. When pole getter Charles Leclerc was withdrawn from the Grand Prix without even taking to the grid, Max Verstappen inherited de facto pole and wielded it to perfection. The Dutchman led every lap of the race to claim his first Monaco Grand Prix victory. It inflicted maximum damage on Mercedes. Lewis Hamilton struggled with tyre warm-up all weekend, and after his team opted against his setup feedback post-practice, he qualified a lowly seventh and wallowed home in the same position, a net loss of two places after retirements. Worse still for Mercedes, Valtteri Bottas retired, and with Sergio Perez in fourth, Red Bull Racing now lead both title stakes for the first time since 2013. So how did it all go so wrong for Mercedes at F1's Blue Ribboned Race? Let's find out with this week's guest. A familiar voice from the Junior Formulae and this year commentating Formula One for Channel 4 in the UK, it's Alex Jakes. Alex, how are you doing? I'm great, thank you, Michael. Great to be with you. And yeah, it was, uh, I'm slightly regretting. Back when you emailed me, you said you want to do after the Spanish Grand Prix or after the Monaco Grand Prix, and I chose poorly. (laughs) Someone's got to do it. It wasn't a great choice, to be fair to you, although in retrospect, maybe you got the slower one. But look, everyone was excited to be back in Monaco. There's a bit to be hyped up about. There were fans back. We talked a lot about that over the course of the weekend. And look, there is is always a lot of uh, excitement about this race in general pretty much up until lap two so there was something to be up and about about yeah it is a it is a phenomenal spectacle and that you felt that buzz it was a slightly weird event in that the parties were curtailed um and there weren't as many fans there but there were fans there and just the fact that there was a, that you know that that buzz before the start of a session and you had the return of the of the circuit commentators and it and it felt it felt normal, but then you're at a totally abnormal event. So you've got ridiculous traffic jams. You've got all the COVID protocols. You've got you can't go out of the red zone. So we weren't in our normal commentary boxes. And the entire race weekend on the ground, it might seem lovely and glamorous and exciting. And it is if you're there as a spectator or in the harbour. But if you're, if you're working at it, it's basically like working in an armpit for the entire <laughs> For the entire weekend, so the, it, it is madness, and it was, and in the spectacle of qualifying when they're at the limit around there, it's it's mind blowing. It's it's just phenomenal um, because of the restrictions of where you could go. I couldn't go and put my nose. What I used to do when I didn't do the Grand Prix and I just did um, Formula Two, I used to go and put my nose on the fence at, at the swimming pool section during qualifying, and seeing the commitment at that point of the track is. Yeah, that is just wild, and uh, it was it was great to see the drivers back at the limit on Saturday. I think absolutely, and I think that's one of the great corners, really, in Formula One. Sometimes we forget that because the corners are all so slow in Monaco, that some of them are really great. And uh, braking is one thing in Formula One, but the change of direction there is really like nothing else. Uh, when we talk about the race, I mean, this comes up every year. Uh, the idea that overtaking is, of course, extremely difficult at Monaco. It feels like every year the cars get wider and longer as well, which makes it only more cumbersome at the very few, I guess, half overtaking opportunities you call that this track provides. I I thought it was interesting, actually, this week, Jano truly said something, which is that 
it's partly because of race pace these days in Formula One. The way racing's evolved, there are fewer mistakes in race day. Reliability is so good generally, but that also comes down to the slower pace. Is that as much perhaps a a cause for the the limited spectacle we tend to get on Sundays as it is the fact that Monaco is just a circuit that would never be allowed on the calendar if it were requested these days? (laughs) Well, you say that, Michael, but we're off to Baku next. (laughs) It's a very good point, actually. You know, so, um, you know, someone, of course, it is a brilliant... It is a brilliantly strange occurrence. Yeah, Yano truly making points about not being able to overtake. It all just fits together beautifully. Takes me right back to my takes me right back to my childhood with him seemingly with the widest car. Um, for anyone who did not enjoy uh, Yano Trulli's career, um, amazing on one lap, and then lap two started, and the pace seemed to to disappear, and the Trulli train formed behind. Um, we don't really have anyone like that in the field at the moment. Yeah, I think the dispiriting thing, and I'll be positive because it, it, I think there's a lot to talk about from a strategy side, but but honestly. The fact that no one was able to stay up someone's gearbox for a sustained period of time. You don't always need overtaking for a brilliant Grand Prix, but you definitely need the threat of overtaking. (laughs) And when a seven-time world champion isn't all over, Senna and Mansell style, all over an Alpha Tauri, then you you do wonder whether Formula One and its current guys has simply outgrown... The two miles, which, all right, okay, that's a pretty extreme <laughs> sentence, but it's get it's getting, it feels like it's gone in a direction for the last three races that we've run there, where maybe it's psychological as well. The drivers, the drivers' shoulders go down, but you know they're trying to stay out of the dirty air. They're trying to keep the tires in the right temperature window, and and no one was really climbing over the back. Um, I remember, you know, there's, there's been overtaking around this track, mm. but it was. No one, no one seemed close, and maybe, you know, maybe it's psychological as well. It's a good point, actually. Maybe a better attitude would would fix some of the problems in Formula One. If we didn't start on Wednesday talking about how the track could be changed, then maybe the track <laughs> would be okay as it is. It's something to think about for next year when we get back to Monaco. But let's talk about some of the characteristics of this circuit that that made the result that we ended up getting. Mercedes obviously had quite a poor race, and yes, we're going to talk about that one. Quite poor by their standards. But they're, they're not typically that strong here anyway. In some senses, they're saved by the fact they're normally so strong on the whole that you kind of can mask that performance a little bit. What is it about this circuit that felled a team that only a couple of weeks ago in Spain seemed like it had finally gotten on top of the problems with its car? Well, all the, all the strengths of the Mercedes are just not highlighted around a track where they have no, there's no major straights, even the pit straight isn't straight, and you have no medium and high-speed corners. So that's why the pendulum swung out of nowhere, shockingly, to a lot of people, to Ferrari, and Mercedes found themselves on the back foot. Um, you know, they've got a long wheelbase on that car as well, which uh, doesn't suit itself to Monaco. And uh, But I think even though they were expecting maybe to not to not be as dominant as they, as they have been in previous races, I think they were taken aback by what actually unfolded. I think, you know, to hear Lewis Hamilton say, well, I asked for changes and I didn't get them, that it felt like the, the most raw weekend for... Uh, open public criticism that we've we've had in a while for Mercedes. It's interesting as well that Mercedes, and I guess there are two different ways we can look at 
the fallout of this race from the Mercedes perspective. One is that, yeah, this was a real low race for them. As you, you said, and we'll mention a little bit a moment about practice, that you know, Lewis Hamilton was pretty openly unhappy with the way the team approached things after Thursday practice. But on the other hand, and it's odd to say, but Mercedes is liable maybe twice a year to have just a catastrophic Grand Prix, one where sometimes literally the wheels fall off and or don't go back on or don't come off in this situation at all. Is there anything... Is there a common thread between all these occurrences that suddenly the team turns up and then nothing works at all? Or is it just pure coincidence that maybe a team that operates at such a high level every other race just needs to breathe sometimes? Yeah, I think there's a lot of truth in that. My first answer was going to be no fancy dress. That's (laughs) how after the German Grand Prix a couple of years ago. No to that. Um, Yeah, they do tend to... Well, you've got to remember, for the amazing standards that Mm -hmm. they have set, they are all human beings. We are coming off the back of a season where we condensed it from July to December in 17 races, took a big deep breath and then, you know, went winter testing after a little bit of a delay as well in March. We're cramming in a ridiculous amount. By the time we get back to Austria, followed by Austria, <laughs> it's going to be, it's going to be a, it's something like, and it might have changed now, but it's like 26 or 27 races in a calendar year. And eventually that's going to tell, um, but yeah, the the weekend unraveled for Mercedes, and they made a made a call. It didn't didn't go their way. But you're right. A couple of times, it just shows you how hard the job is. A couple of times a year, they do have a stinker. This was one of them. And I guess they stand out when they're normally so good. You know, maybe we should be talking about every team occasionally having terrible races, but they're not as well highlighted. Don't appear in the Netflix show. <laughs> Uh, which maybe they could. Uh, And look, finally, just to sort of wrap up this race in a general sense before we get into some of the details, Monaco is, as we've talked about, an extremely unusual track. It's not like any other track on the calendar. It is unique. Is it too much to read into the results of this race, the championship permutations, maybe even the dynamic between the drivers? I know there was a little bit made or tried to be made of some words between Hamilton and Verstappen over the course of the weekend considering that you would assume none of this will ever be replicated over the course of this season. So from a car dynamic point of view, you can make that case. But in terms of its significance for the championship, uh, absolutely huge. Because there's always, we always talk about when a driver gets their first win. Well, you know, nice breakthrough moment. Well, first time in Max Verstappen's career, he's in the lead of the championship. You've got Lewis Hamilton just dropping just casual grenades you know, oh, yeah, you know, and, and then Max is having to respond to those questions in the press conference. I have nothing to prove. He does have something to prove. He's trying to prove he's the best driver in the world. And the contest between the two of them, you know, it's just it's just little needle needly bits where it's, you know, do you think Max Verstappen's driven you forward this year? And Lewis Hamilton responds, I've driven myself forward. And then Max having to respond. So there's a developing edge there. Very respectful, but there's a developing edge because... They're not messing around. They're the two best drivers out there. They're contending for the biggest prize. It means everything. This championship, whoever comes out on top, it's going to mean more than most. Because if Max Verstappen beats a seven-time world champion, that's almost you know an even bigger trophy mm-hmm. for a bigger accolade for him. And if Lewis beats a proper threat and Mercedes keep underlining it, and they were saying before the start of the weekend, listen... Red Bull have been throwing chances away. That's what they were briefing out at the start of the weekend. Red Bull have been throwing chances away, and then suddenly they take the chances. Mercedes have the off weekend. It's going to 
if it's the classic season that we deserve, Michael, it's going to pendulum swing all the way through. And that was just a classic example of it on Sunday. And God knows we deserve it. Absolutely, we do. Look, let's have a look at how this weekend unfolded in a little bit of detail. The most interesting moment, perhaps, in terms of how this race unfolded for Mercedes was on Friday when there was no practice at all. On Thursday, they looked thereabouts, as much as you can for an opening practice session at Monaco, uh, getting back into the swing of things after a year's absence from that track. Uh, but tyre warm-up, as has been, I guess you could say, an emerging strength of this car, actually, considering this is a summer series and tyre degradation is normally a problem, was a was a problem here for them because tyre warm-up was so difficult in Monaco. It was sort of the inverse issue for the Mercedes car. Hamilton has, has noted this a couple of times since then, that he had ideas to fix this problem. And Mercedes appeared and admitted, in, Toto's, in Toto Wolff's words, to essentially ignoring them is that too strong a word going a different way does he have cause to say that this race should have been better for him had he been listened to yeah I think you can play it two ways he wasn't sure about the strategy that he was put on in the Spanish Grand Prix and then it delivered him to victory Um, and you do hear him question I think it's part of the team uh, work ethic that they debate things as they go along and it's a lot easier to respond to mistakes when you've got seven championship trophies on the shelf uh, has the team and the driver have. So it's easy to respond when you've done a lot of winning, but um, Lewis didn't shy away from it, did he? He clearly had ideas about how they had to get on top of a problem that was going to define their weekend. Um, And yeah, you've got a better hope. You've got a better hope that he's not seventh on the grid if, if you've ignored him. That's a worst case scenario. So I think, yeah, in hindsight, they, w- they would have potentially gone down his route and, uh, and, and maybe had a better outcome. But they were always chasing it. And when you're chasing it, margin calls like that are going to be defining for a weekend. Is too much being made of the idea that Hamilton has been quite publicly critical of his team? We know this is, uh, he, he loves to say they win and lose together. And I suppose they are losing together. Well, there's no avoiding that, really. But he, he was at really at pains. I think it was a Dutch TV interview in particular where he said the team has something to learn, but not me. Is that, I mean, and you said this earlier as well. It's one of the, and I'm trying to think now, one of the first substantial public fissures between Hamilton and the team. Maybe fissure is too strong a word, considering it is about the nitty gritty of a race weekend rather than anything larger than that. But is there too much to be made of that? It's unusual. Um, I would be more... <laughs> You know what? I'd rather he say that in the general scheme of things. I'd rather he come out and be honest about that situation than give us some sort of pre-rehearsed PR answer where he's like, yeah, it's fine. And look completely downbeat and irritated. And so he said that he gave us an insight into what was going on. He let us in behind the scenes. Um, you, you know, it's a rare off day. Uh, I think Ross Braun said Hamilton's out of practice of being frustrated. And I think that's what we heard. Uh, that's a good call. It is a good summary. Let's look at qualifying. Ferrari was, in some senses, a surprise packet of this weekend up to this point. They looked quick in practice. They occasionally look quick in practice and then sort of revert to the norm. And they have been rising this season. Uh, but were contending for pole. Contending for the front row, in fact, perhaps would have got there had, well, one of the Ferrari drivers crashed in Q3. It was Charles Leclerc. Uh, Ferrari, this ultimate, this in some sense has decided the race, in fact. Normally the race is decided by who gets pole, not who crashes from pole. Uh, Ferrari missed that there was a, uh, a problem with the rear of his car on the side, not crashed. This is 
very easy to say in retrospect. But should there have been a more substantial check of this car, considering it had been involved in a relatively substantial crash, considering that pole position was on the line here? Yeah, they'll kick themselves. If they miss out on third in the Constructors' Mm. Championship by uh, a margin of points that they could have got in Monaco, they, they will kick themselves because, you know, it's a really odd situation to bin the car and take pole. You can put the conspiracy theories <laughs> to bed because it was that heavier hit that he it, that it cost Charles on on Sunday. But yeah, to to have had a chance to inspect the car and catch it and and miss it, that will that will hurt more than than Sunday's events already did because that is a huge chance lost and. Ferrari have been through the ringer. You know, last year was, for a team of their budget, forget their historical standing in the sport, for a team of their budget, it was, it was death by a thousand cuts. It was just awful, even if, even if Charles had an amazing qualifying. And by the way, an amazing qualifying last year was fourth. Mm-hmm. That, was, that was what everyone was raving about. They were never in the top three last year in qualifying. And then they just sink like a stone. And to have all of that... Um, and then suddenly, out of nowhere, there were, there were a few people who had an eye on them. Um, McLaren knew that they'd go well. Lando Norris was talking about that earlier in the weekend. There were a few journalists who knew the betting odds, let's put it that way. <laughs> and, uh, and then suddenly they look good in practice, but you're like, it's only practice. And yeah, to have it in the grasp, um, I think you would have had, even if Charlotte made it through, I think you would have definitely had a Ferrari on the front row. So they'll be... They'll be distraught that the, the, the it was missed and it was within their capability to to find what cost Charles pole position. And Carlos Sainz delivering in the end proved that there was... I mean, we knew by that point, of course, the car was good for Monaco, but it does make you wonder what more really could have been on the table and what kind of race we could have had had Charles Leclerc led away from pole because he was taken off the grid. Max Verstappen was de facto pole at that point, albeit not starting from pole position. I thought it was good thoughtfulness for him to angle his car from the dirty side of the grid to to point to exactly where he knew Bottas was going to be going and he went straight there and Bottas could not be there. Bottas slotted into second place and Verstappen controlled the race from there, leading every lap. There's some interesting data from F1 Trends you can check out in the show notes of this episode or at f1strategyreport.com that shows just how much pace management Verstappen was undertaking to extend that first stint to ensure that he was absolutely flexible for that first pit stop window. You can see particularly in the fuel corrected lap times that I'm looking at now that for some of the first stint, even Sebastian Vettel down the order in seventh behind Hamilton and Gasly was lapping quicker than the leader. It made life a little bit more difficult for those trying to find a window to pit into in those opening laps, but it also meant Verstappen had the tyre life to wait until almost everyone behind him had made their first stop, everyone in the top 10 anyway, before making his sole pit stop. And as a result, he led every lap of the race. You can find that fuel-corrected pace chart uh, as well as another chart from Formula One Trends on Twitter on the show notes of this episode or on the website. But let's go back to talk about how that battle between Verstappen and Bottas panned out. It was very brief. Before we talk about Lewis Hamilton, uh, Bottas couldn't stick with Verstappen for too long. By lap 20, he already had some tyre problems emerging. And I guess this is the first hint we we had that 
I mean, not only did Mercedes have these tyre warm-up issues, but in an effort to try and cure them, they couldn't manage the tyre degradation, really. And by lap 20, I guess the sign was that there was not going to be a lot to gain for Mercedes in this Grand Prix. Yeah, absolutely. Um, as you point out, the signs for Bottas then informed which way they went with Hamilton. But uh, he was comfortably within uh, undercut range, what we'd call traditional undercut range, although that's not really where half the, half the field were, were thinking about because of the issues we've already talked about. Um, but no, as you say, he, he, had, he had gone through that tyre completely. He was dropping back significantly before, before he made his stop. And this stop was, well, everything for Valtteri Bottas, the end of everything for Valtteri Bottas. An unusual uh, moment. The the wheel nut essentially was stripped of its of its grooves. The driving face. Uh, something. It's pretty. It's pretty rare to see that in Formula One. It's one of those weird things where one day I hope they make a documentary about the millions spent about perfecting how the wheel gun matches with the wheel <laughs> hub and how these things don't happen. Uh, in fact, the wheel may even, as we're recording, still be on the car as it was being shipped back. It's it, it's still on the yes. car. They can't get it off until they go back to the factory, which is just incredible. I think someone was someone was joking that it is the longest pit stop of all time, then because that that wheel is still on the car. Um, I can't, Michael. Can you remember? Can you remember that happening in Formula One? I can't remember another time that that has happened uh, in a pit stop in Formula One. I just just can't maybe it's happened in practice and it's dropped out of my head but I can't ever remember that happening in a race no because normally when and it could be that this particular problem has not occurred in this particular way but occasionally you get things like cross-threading and stuff like that and normally someone rocks up with a big hammer and just smashes the thing don't they and is that just not like the Mercedes way it's too crude and they'd prefer to retire the car than break the wheel <laughs> than get the the hammer of yeah, yeah the di- the dignity free hammer brought, <laughs> brought out um yeah i think at that point you know that you're the moment that he dropped out of the points you knew they were going to mm. abandon shit with that but no uh in- in- incredible to see to see basically just a slick nut on mm. the on the car and uh bottas we didn't see I'm not going to get into because we've 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 not got an hour for me to rant about what we did and didn't see from the one-off direction from our, our friends at Monaco TV. Anyway, it's fine. I've got over it. It's fine. Um, <laughs> but uh, what what became apparent afterwards is that Bottas threw his gloves to the floor. He he just went for a walk, totally consumed in the anger that this chance had got away from him, and I think. Part of that, he was just loitering in the FIA garage. He'd, he'd just, you know, so angry at what had happened uh, before he went back to talk to the team. He, he lost an opportunity to take advantage of a, of a bad day for Lewis Hamilton. And as we've already highlighted, there were about two a year. And his chance, not only of a first Monaco Grand Prix was gone, but taking advantage of a, of a bad day for his, for his teammate. And, you know, that's another huge loss of points. And stark stat of a second... Uh, DNF in four races when Lewis Hamilton's finished every race since 2018 in Austria, for goodness sake. (laughs) It's a rough statistic to hold. It didn't seem, I mean, at the time, obviously, they weren't sure exactly what had happened or why it had happened, rather. Uh, And there were some shots afterwards. There were some great shots captured of this entire incident of the wheel gun going on and coming off and the nut not being there effectively or was there and just not in the way they expected, and then trying to figure out what had happened to the gun. Mercedes, as far as I understand, still don't know exactly why it's happened, did they? And on that, and this is fast-forwarding a little bit in the race, but Lewis Hamilton, of course, came in for a late stop for the soft tyre to at least get a, a point for fastest lap. 
I mean, how big a risk is that if you don't know... Is there a problem with the wheel gun? What's going on there? It must have been an extremely nervy time. Yeah, I think they would have been incredibly nervous purely because of the rarity. It's And it's mm. not like... the In the comm box, the suspicion was, was he short of his marks? Because it, the angle made sense. If, if, the, if the gun had gone in at an angle, you know, you just might get plain unlucky with it. But no, he was, he was pretty much bang on. Um, so they would have been very nervous... Because to be honest, it's it's a it's a borderline embarrassing way to potentially lose, and they're they're worried at that point of losing both cars mm. from the most famous Formula One race um, when they've already had a bad weekend. So yeah, it would have been nervy, but it it worked out for Lewis in that regard in the pit stop. Yes. Now let's look at his race a little bit more generally because Bottas is out of the Grand Prix very very early on. Hamilton was actually the first man to make a scheduled pit stop in this race, which I think goes some way to illustrating the tire troubles Mercedes was experiencing. Albeit they didn't know how bad they were on Lewis's car, they admitted afterwards there were probably at least a few more laps left on those tires. He was stuck behind Pierre Gasly, we know overtaking is extremely extremely difficult around this circuit. But notwithstanding that they could see probably there was a cliff coming here, the undercut was forecast all weekend to be very to, to really lack power. We knew Mercedes was struggling to warm up its tyres as well, which is key to the undercut, especially when you're going straight to the hard compound. Would it have been better, they talk about this finely judged risk, to have just risked the other way, considering we're still talking only about seventh place here? Yeah, I mean, you, you, you don't want to be damning of a team that's had so much success, but all of the things that you listed, if you were going to gamble, and especially you've got Lewis Hamilton, for goodness mm-hmm. sake. And I, I, make, I make this point occasionally. Because we never saw him in a Minardi <laughs> or at the back of the field, we never saw a race where it became obvious how blindingly good he was with the tyres. And sometimes, because he's always been in a McLaren or a Mercedes, that gets masked. I mean, sometimes you can see the tyres are blistered and in awful shape and he's taken them really long way. Of course, when he won the last, the previous Monaco Grand Prix, he had to take those tyres a really long way. Mm. That's a strength. Yeah. You know, we've seen it loads of times with the giant killing axe of Sergio Perez, but... Lewis Hamilton, equally good at taking tyres a stupidly long distance. <laughs> so maybe they were trying to catch them out. Um, yeah, they spotted the gap between Perez and, and Giovinazzi. They, they tried to take advantage of it, but nothing from the weekend that far uh, was pointing to the undercut being powerful enough to, to get him past. Unless they were just hoping for the pure pace of the car. And the fact that track temperature was slightly warmer on a Sunday, it is a strange one. It is. Well, look, it's their cheat weekend, isn't it? (laughs) They're allowed to make some crazy decisions this weekend, and then next week it'll be fine. We'll be able to forget about it. Gasly covered him really easily the following lap uh, in, but then I think the the most disappointing part, well, I mean, it was pretty clear from the team radio, was that Sebastian Vettel subsequently jumped both of them by running long. Again, this trend of running long. We'll talk about Aston Martin in just a second. Uh, but then I guess, I mean, frustrated again, subsequently, that he was jumped. All three of them were jumped. It was like a game, like a dominoes of Sergio, by Sergio Perez, who had also qualified out of position uh, in this race. But 
I suppose at least did the minimum for the team, got up to fourth, was challenging for the podium late against Lando Norris, who was on his second of three strikes for uh, yeah. uh, cutting the track. Incredible to think that happens in Monaco, but it does. <laughs> uh, let's talk about Sergio Perez briefly here, because we know we've talked well about the frustration of Lewis Hamilton in that situation. He's been a little, under a little bit of pressure up to this point, uh, as is the way at Red Bull, after only four races, on, in, especially in terms of qualifying, trying to get onto the pace of Max Verstappen. Does some of that pressure get relieved now? This was not necessarily a standout weekend for him, but it was, a, I suppose, a decent weekend on balance because the team is now up in the constructor standings, which really in the job description is probably line number one. Might even be the heading of the contract. <laughs> yeah. Um, <clears throat> well, I think if they... The thing is, Sergio Perez is not a driver for Saturday, and Red Bull knew that when they signed him. He's a driver who gives you lots of strategic options on uh, a Sunday and at a track that suits him. And by the way, we're going to one next. So, you know, he's going to be a driver who can steal Grand Prix wins off the Mercedes. That's that's what they needed him to do. Um, and to recover from ninth to fourth around Monaco is not a bad job at all. So I think they'll be quite pleased with that. They could do with him getting on the podium fairly regularly, but... We know now it's it's not up for debate anymore. We know now that that is a notoriously difficult car to drive. It hasn't the second Red Bull hasn't won a Grand Prix since Daniel Ricciardo in 2018. It's barely scored podiums in that time. So it's it, it, he's going to get there because he's a hugely experienced driver. But I think it casts the trouble that Gasly and Albon had in a much better light because it is a really complex problem to solve. Um, if he does solve the Saturday problem and he can get within, at this point, you'd say half a second of Max uh, back to the old default. If you get to the old Daniel Ricciardo deficit, you know, two tenths of a second, then Red Bull are laughing because <laughs> they've got the championship lead and he's got undoubted ability on a Sunday. And we saw that again. So the way that these top points positions wrapped up, of course, Max Verstappen claimed victory. Carlos Sainz was very solid in second. Lando Norris defended well against Sergio Perez at the end of the race. Then you can take the next few in reverse order. Hamilton stopped lap 29. Uh, he finished seventh. Then ahead of him, Gasly stopped lap 30. Vettel stopped lap 31. Perez stopped lap 35. You see the trend emerging here, which takes us nicely to Lance Stroll, who finished behind Hamilton, quite close behind Hamilton, notwithstanding Hamilton made that additional stop. One of only two drivers to start on a hard tie, the contract strategy was outside of the top 10 and as much as we might say that this was a a a much improved race for Sebastian Vettel and it was this was a a fine Vettel performance making the tyres last that little bit longer and and moving up the order this was also a strong answer from for Lance Stroll I guess a driver who didn't look quite as confident as Vettel up to the race uh, in Monaco Massive stint on those tyres to deliver, incredibly, Aston Martin's first double points finish of the year. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, confidence is the word. You mentioned it a second ago. That's, uh, Lance didn't have any of it. So Bernadette Collins down at Aston Martin decides to give him a nice long run to, pr- to protect the tyres. Um, and Lance delivered really nicely uh, with that strategy. Um, it's a, a shot in the arm as well for that team because they've been so downbeat after the regulation changes affected them so much. Stroll's gone from you know, thinking about, oh, can I sneak a podium this weekend to just trying to get into, into Q3. Um, but 58 laps on that hard tyre uh, did the business. And uh, Ocon went for the medium, wasn't the right one. Uh, hard tyres, great call from uh, Bernadette Collins at Aston Martin. 
Uh, and let's wrap up the top 10 here. Esteban Ocon, Antonio Giovinazzi, a good weekend for Alfa Romeo, uh, unfortunately. And this is a, a rule that comes up every so often, doesn't it? This idea of having free tyre choice outside the top 10. Occasionally, it's quite a big advantage. Ocon had the advantage of new softs and in the effort to, to go as deep into the race as possible, either hoping for a safety car. First race in a very long time in Monaco not to feature one, not even feature a yellow flag, I think, was there? Incredible uh, to think around this circuit. He was able to take them that little bit longer to dump Antonio Giovinazzi. That in itself is really interesting, though, isn't it? I mean, everyone is counting on a safety car at Monaco. I, I wonder how how different this race might have been had we got... I mean, we got either. close, didn't we? I mean, Lance, as, as we saw... Mm. Well, the replay showed us, yes. Last, as we saw, was jumping over the curve, which could have easily put him in the barrier. Um, but, yeah, so there were a few hairy moments, and the drivers will tell you that every corner is a hairy moment around Monaco. But to have no yellow flag, I don't know, mm. might go back to the psychological thing. Are they really? Are they really on the limit in the way that we want them to be if mm-hmm. we don't get one yellow flag? I mean, that is, that is a very, very <laughs> strange occurrence. Well, I mean, I did th- I did enjoy that DC after the race at the podium ceremony remarked that Carlos Sainz was not sweating at all. <laughs> and all cars could say was, I'm fitter than you, which is probably true, with no disrespect to DC. Well, but- I, would ho- I would hope it's true. Yeah. I mean, you know... <laughs> If Carlos, if Carlos is, uh, you know, is if he's flabbier than a fifty-year-old guy, then you know, then I think there's going to be there's going to be words said down at Ferrari. <laughs> it is interesting to think uh, that I mean, but this is what they're paid for to be drivers who can get out of the car, and it's part of the psychological game as well to look like you could get straight back in and do another seventy-eight laps. Before we let you go, Alex, uh, this season, uh, this part of the season of the Strategy Report is brought to you by Heel Tread, socks inspired by iconic cars. And lucky you, you get to choose a pair just for appearing on the show. I, I can't tell you how much I actually enjoyed this. Like, honestly, <laughs> just go, going through, I was like, free socks. It's fantastic. This is a genuine bonus. Um, yeah, I've gone for some classic Team Lotus uh, mm. socks from, from an unusual year. Because I thought they looked good, but I used to have a poster on my wall growing up of Ed and Senna in the 87 Lotus going up the hill um, in the unusual yellow livery. Oh, yeah. And I don't know how I ended up with that poster, but I remember it being there from when I was very, very young. And uh, yeah, so I've gone for the ones inspired by the Lotus in that year. A fine choice indeed. And you too can get a pair of Heel Tread socks if you go to heeltread.com and use the code word STRATEGY for a 10% discount. The Monaco Grand Prix, another interesting chapter in the 2021 championship. And it does feel like the momentum has swung a little dramatically in the other direction. For the first time in his F1 career, Max Verstappen leads the Drivers' Championship standings. And for the first time since 2013, it's Red Bull Racing ahead of Mercedes. And Alex, pleasure it was to talk about it with you. Thanks for having me. Really appreciate it. It might be too early in the season to say it was a must-win, but Max Verstappen and Red Bull Racing needed victory in Monaco to halt Mercedes' massing momentum, though I doubt even they thought they could deal this much damage in one weekend. Mercedes will fight back hard in Azerbaijan, but with the points gap practically annulled, we're in for an interesting second quarter of this season. Thanks very much to Alex Jakes from Channel 4 for joining me. 
The Strategy Report is supported by Heeltread, socks inspired by iconic cars. Go to heeltread.com and use the code word STRATEGY for a 10% discount. Make sure you never miss an episode of The Strategy Report by subscribing with Google, Apple, Spotify or your favourite podcast app. And if you like the show, please leave us a rating and a review to help spread the word. And you can also find us on social media. The Strategy Report is a beer mogul podcast. Special thanks to Ben Loke from Bloke Designs for the show artwork and our theme music is by Simon Hosford. My name's Michael Laminato and I'll be back next week to preview the Azerbaijan Grand Prix.